This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am pleased to be with Bishop Emilio Alvarez to talk about his new book, Pentecostal Orthodoxy, Toward an Ecumenism of the Spirit, published by IVP Academic 2022. This recasting, uh, the book begins by asking the question, can anything Orthodox come from Pentecostalism? This recasting of Nathaniel's familiar question from the gospel is a fair summary of many modern Christians' assessment of the Pentecostal tradition. Yet in recent years, a growing number of Pentecostals have been turning afresh to the ancient creedal Christian faith. Bishop Emilio Alvarez has himself been at the forefront of this movement. In Pentecostal Orthodoxy, he introduces the phenomena and extends the project of the Paleo-Orthodox Resourcement associated with scholars such as Thomas Oden and Robert Weber to include Orthodox expressions within Pentecostalism, particularly his own Afro-Latino Pentecostal movement. This book is a manifesto of sorts, promising not only to open up the possibility of a genuinely Orthodox Pentecostalism, but to reframe the modern ecumenical dialogue as well. And Bishop Alvarez is presiding bishop of the Union of Charismatic Orthodox Churches, a communion that embraces the one holy Catholic apostolic tradition. And he's also the associate provost for lifelong learning at Asbury Theological Seminary. Bishop, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Jackson, it is my complete pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited. Well, I was excited to read the book when I saw the uh, ad come up on IVP. I knew that's something I have to read coming from a a Pentecostal background myself. But let's talk about your background first. Give us a sense of your ecclesial and academic background and how that led to the writing of Pentecostal Orthodoxy. Sure. I was uh, raised um, denominationally classical Pentecostal uh, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. As a matter of fact, my father is still very much in that particular denomination. Um, so I was raised uh, Church of God uh, around somewhere around 15, 16, had a real crisis of faith, um, left the church for a bit, came back to it in my early 20s, uh, have always been very much Pentecostal. Um, evangelical Pentecostal, you know, even though those two things are two different streams for me, um, but non-denominational. And it was at the latter part of 2000 and I want to say 15 that or 14 that um, as I'm beginning to finish my master's of divinity or my master's of arts and religious education at New York Theological Seminary, that I began to experiment with this whole notion of a real practice of embodying um, the riches of the great tradition, the liturgical sacramental riches of the great tradition. So in 2013, um, I began researching three stream movements, uh, the Convergence Worship Movement, Ancient Future Faith, and began to really incorporate that into our services. I've been pastoring since I was 20. 
And so since then, uh, we have just consistently developed churches, planted churches, um, that have been, um, you know, practicing again that spirituality, the rich spirituality of the great tradition. Uh, did my master's in religious education at New York Theological Seminary, then went on to do my PhD in religious education at Fordham University. And now under the very uh, Reverend uh, Dr. John Baer, I'm looking to do my second PhD at Aberdeen uh, with him as my mentor. So that's a little bit of my ecclesial background. You've already mentioned that I am currently serving as the presiding um, primate uh, uh, of the Union of Charismatic Orthodox Churches, which is a federation of churches around the country and around the world uh, of charismatics and Pentecostals who have recovered the great tradition. So that's a little bit about it. Yes. Fantastic. Well, your first chapter begins with definitions. Tell us what you mean by Pentecostal and orthodoxy, because I think many people both in and out of those traditions have a lot of ideas on what those terms mean. How do you set out Pentecostalism and orthodoxy? You know, that's a great question, Jackson, because I'm always confronted with that very same question. And so first and foremost, when I utilize the term Pentecostal, as I say in the book, I'm not so much really defining the classical Pentecostalism that started in Azusa Street, 1906. I'm actually going broader than that. And I'm looking at the historical and the biblical terminology, Pentecostal, as including the empowerment of the Spirit, the ecstatic manifestations of the Holy Spirit, um, these kinds of giftings, uh, whether you speak in tongues or you don't, and whether you consider it evidence or you don't. Uh, there's been, uh, of course, if you know, a trajectory without, within the church uh, that includes uh, both areas and some other areas that have developed. So when I use Pentecostalism, I'm using it and in the broader sense, not classical Pentecostalism, not just neo-Pentecostalism, uh, but in the broader sense to identify the giftings and the work of the Spirit um, throughout the history of the church. When we utilize um, the term orthodox in the book, I am not referring to big O. Right. Big O, um, the Orthodox Church or the Orthodox tradition, Big O. But it really is little O, which is that classical consensual exegesis, that little O, which, as I explain in the book, we can utilize or we can see developing throughout the history of the church before the great schism of 1054. So when I utilize little o, that's what I'm referring to. When you you advocate for this Pentecostal orthodoxy and you you recommend that Pentecostals stay within this kind of tradition, uh, why are, why should Pentecostals stay Pentecostal as opposed to joining charismatic churches within Anglican Catholic or Eastern denominations? Yeah. Um, I think that because of how I'm utilizing Orthodox to suggest and to bring up um, the liturgical, sacramental, theological riches of the early church um, before the great schism that I believe belonged to the whole church, I see Pentecostalism being able to draw from these treasures of the great tradition 
yet not having to go and cross over into a particular denomination, into a particular tradition. I argue in the book that it's interesting um, that in the charismatic, in the Catholic charismatic renewal, the charismatic renewal movement, um, when Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopalians, I mean, everyone was benefiting. There is even, um, you know, a case to be made that if you um, uh, subscribe to Father uh, Timothy Cremine's book on the marginalized voices in the Eastern Orthodox Church at the same time, that this type of renewal movement came into orthodoxy. Yet the interesting thing to me was that there were these wonderful men and women of God who were experiencing these moves of the Spirit and recovering these moves of the Spirit and bringing them back to their own traditions. They were not moving into Pentecostalism. Uh, so you, you would you know immediately suggest, right? Wow, you are speaking in tongues. Well, that's what Pentecostals do. You need to go find yourself a Pentecostal church. But this is not what occurred, right? This is not what occurred. And so it is... Interesting. It's it's almost humorous to me sometimes, and I say that respectfully. When people say, "Well, you're recovering the great tradition, you're recovering the liturgy, you're recovering the sacraments, you're recovering the historic, you know, tradition," you have to go to a Roman Catholic church now. You have to go to an Anglican church now. Now you have to because that's where that's done. And my argument is in the same way that these wonderful traditions were able to recover and rediscover the power of the Holy Spirit, right, and the ecstatic manifestations, and yet they did not move from their tradition. They stayed in their tradition and enriched their tradition. That's what I see myself and others who are following this journey. That's what I see us doing. We don't want to leave Pentecostalism. We want to enrich Pentecostalism. We want to say to Pentecostalism, this also belongs to us, and we don't have to stop being Pentecostals if we recover it. Fantastic. Uh, you consider yourself an Afro-Latino bishop, according to the book. Uh, how do you conceptualize Afro-Latino and, and what makes Afro-Latino Pentecostalism distinct vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, say, the tradition I grew up in, which was very white dominant Assemblies of God Pentecostalism? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, Afro-Latino is a terminology that is expanding and developing. It's continuing to expand and develop. Of course, when we talk about Afro-Latino, I utilize it in the book as a, a social dynamic inclusive of African-Americans and Latinos and Latinos who have African descendants, right? And so it is an inclusive term uh, that I utilize, realizing that we could always talk about Latino, Latinx, Afro-Latino, Afro-Latinx, which is inclusive of men and women. Within Pentecostalism, um, the distinction would be, and the distinctive would be that, you know, it for the Afro-Latino Pentecostal, there are more roots to that Azusa Street um, revival, where the Astuja Street revival really did start off as a revival of people of color um, and then expanded and developed to be more inclusive of everyone. But it really did start off as people of color, particularly um, African-Americans and uh, those of the Latino um, persuasion. And so the distinction that I see is that 
um, in Af- in the Afro Latino in the Afro Latino context, Pentecostalism, um, there there is kind of a rootedness to this Azusa Street revival um, dynamic versus other denominations. Not to play down other Caucasian denominations, because of course our you know our our white Caucasian brothers and sisters played a major role, um, but the, the beginnings were of people of color. Fantastic. So you've mentioned the term great tradition. Uh, I read a little bit in the in the book synopsis about paleo orthodoxy. Tell me what this great tradition is that Pentecostal orthodoxy seeks to revive. Yeah. So the great tradition, of course, are the riches of the liturgy and the sacramental spirituality of the church. How we get to that is interesting. And so when we talk about the resourcement of paleo-orthodoxy, which I extend into um, Pentecostal orthodoxy, uh, my view, first and foremost, is that paleo-orthodoxy is this umbrella. And so the umbrella is paleo-orthodoxy. And under this umbrella of paleo-orthodoxy, you have the various expressions of this particular renewal movement, which is called paleo-orthodoxy. And so you will have, of course, three-stream language, you have ancient future language, you have convergence worship language. And then I argue that Pentecostal orthodoxy is one of the latest expressions. So to recover the liturgy, the sacramental spirituality, the historic theology of the church is for me to recover the great tradition, that great tradition that belongs to all of us. Yet we do this um, as an expression within paleo-orthodoxy, um, utilizing the extra-canonical normative interpretive arbiter, right? We all have a communitarian approach to theology. We are not closed canon, right? Just kind of looking at things very static and very linear. But we have a communitarian approach which the community speaks. Our uh, communitarian approach is this extra-canonical normative interpretive arbiter, which is St. Vincent of Lorenz, uh, quote ubique, quote sempre, quote abum nibos credentum es, right? We believe that which has been uh, believed everywhere, always, and by all. We hold to the faith that has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. Now, when I utilize that in relation to the great tradition, my scholar friends get really squirmy, right? Because... Okay, everything is, you know, the faith that has been believed everywhere, always and by all, right? You're not taking into account the various differences and the various dynamics within the historic Christian tradition, uh, the various differences and the political infighting which exist. And I, I am very aware of those things, but there are major facets of our theology and our spirituality within the great tradition that have um, um, universality, that have apostolicity, that have conciliarity, that have all of these consensual uh, agreements. And it is to those as Pentecostals that we go back to, to recover and bring to the present. That's what I mean by the great tradition. In your second chapter, you bring up this concept of orthopathy as opposed to orthodoxy and orthopraxis. Explain this Pentecostal orthodox contribution of orthopathic thought or orthopathy. Yeah, this this really comes from John Wesley's view 
um, of the emotive experience, right? This ex- this experiential understanding of God and being able to experience God. And, and Wesley even speaks of this um, um, in terms of reason, uh, tradition, right? Scripture and experience. And Pentecostalism, we have Wesleyan holiness as our antecedent or as one of our antecedents. And so it is always really orthodoxy, orthopathy and orthopraxy but to be honest with you jackson i i really am reconsidering and and for pentecostals i reconsider where we start and i think that we sometimes more well many more times than than others we start at orthopathy and get to orthodoxy and then get to orthopraxis because I'm reminded of the axiom lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, that it is the law of worship, then the law of belief, then the law of living. And I think orthopathy for us in the Pentecostal charismatic world um, plays into how we learn what we learn about God, because in our experience, right, that has been our critique, that our experience is null and void, and that it's just emotive, and that we're just having these moments of breakdown, but there's something really going on there. And so I tell my students and those who I train in the ministry, I did not come to the Eucharist propositionally, cognitively. It was it was a I think it was a Thursday or excuse me it was a Sunday morning I'm thinking of something else it was a Sunday morning at um, Christ Redeemer the Cathedral Christ the Redeemer in New York in Malvern and I stood before the table as I was coming up and experienced Jesus um, not cognitively but experientially and so I came to know that there was real presence at the table not because somebody propositioned or uh, cognitively gave me some t- theory, but because I experienced it. And so I see orthopathy as God working through experiential emotive experiences or emotive spirituality to teach us, to to bring us to a place of understanding him. And then we learn, right, how to be able um, to believe. And then we learn how to be able to live. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. I was thinking of my own experiences in believing God, you know, God himself. It was not a cognitive proposition, some sort of, you know, a classic scholastic argument. It was the experience of the Holy Spirit upon me that drove me to believing that rather than a reasonable assent. And people say, you know, are you, you know, what, you, you know, I don't see God. I don't experience God. And to me, I say, I'm an empiricist. I experienced this and that that was something that led me to to the truth. So that makes complete sense. Um, you you a part of your book is spent discussing Episcopal and ancient Christian practice within Afro Latino and Black Pentecostal churches. What is your critique of those practices, and 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 what what would you like to see in future uh, great tradition appropriation by Pentecostals? Yeah, Um, I think it's first and foremost one of the weaknesses of my argument as a whole. I think I need to be more inclusive um, when I'm writing. And the reason I was not is because this is really the tradition kind of that I have come to be reared in for the last you know, 20 something years. And so when I speak of the the Episcopate and the Black Pentecostal experience, um, I don't mean to be 
exclusive, right? Um, but there are some things there that I have been laboring among others. There's other men and women who have been laboring to see um, some changes. And, I, and I, I think one of those changes is that we need to, we need to stop making baseless appropriations of, um, of different customs and stop politicizing um, different aspects of the great tradition like vestments and titles and ranks. And, um, you know, I was on with uh, a dear brother the other day and we were sharing and we were saying to each other that, you know, when does mimicry turn into menace, right? Uh, because it seems to me uh, that not all, but some in the African-American and Latino uh, Pentecostal tradition are now just mimicking. And when I mean mimicking, I mean you are wearing a chasuble and there's no Eucharist. Um, you, you, you are wearing vestments because they're based on rank, but not based on spirituality. That's mimicking because you're not really taking into account the essence of the spirituality, the holistic spirituality, the names, um, the rankings, you know, uh, the inventions, right? I go back to St. Vincent of Lorenz, who said, dicas nove non dicas nova, speak newly, but don't speak new things. And we have a, a strong, strong kind of, um, uh, I, I guess, let me just call it tendency to invent new things. Um, and we don't need to invent new things. So I want to see a healthy um, African-American, Latino, Pentecostal a tradition that is recovering, if we are indeed recovering, that we not only recover base elements, that's what I call them, right? Base elements. They think that, I mean, they think they're doing something and they're not doing much. They're just recovering base elements. But I want to see uh, uh, Afro-Latino Pentecostal um, church that's recovering the great tradition, recover it whole and holistic without losing the power of the spirit, without losing the ecstatic manifestations of the spirit, um, without losing their identity. I'm reminded of a quote by uh, Homi Baba, a post-colonial theorist who defined mimicry as almost the same, but not quite, not quite. It's, and, and, and so I appreciate that, that desire to make it the same is, is, is really bring into conversation and similarity. So, uh, the subtitle of your book is Toward an Ecumenism of the Spirit. What is this ecumenism and how is it different from what you, you call institutional or spiritual ecumenism? Yeah, so I really do believe that expressions like Pentecostal orthodoxy um, are an ecumenism of the spirit, not spiritual ecumenism. Spiritual ecumenism is a terminology that's been around for a very long time that really belongs to the old guard of ecumenism. Um, Cardinal Walter Casper really developed and coined the term spiritual ecumenism, by which he means that spiritual ecumenism is a way of visible unity, but that way of visible unity is more in line with what we can do together than asking the Holy Spirit to come upon our action and bless our action of unity. I distinguish, there's a distinguishing between spiritual ecumenism, spiritual ecumenism and an ecumenism of the spirit in that while spiritual ecumenism seems to be led by our wanting to have unity, an ecumenism of the spirit, it seems to be a grassroots movement of the spirit himself. 
For example, um, I woke up one morning, went to the church on a Sunday and just wanted to eat his flesh and drink his blood out of nowhere. I mean, again, no one said anything to me. No, I mean, it is literally, and there is, I am sure, as I've heard, an Orthodox priest who woke up one morning and just started speaking in tongues. And there is a Roman Catholic uh, priest or bishop somewhere who woke up one morning and wanted to preach with vigor and fire. And I, I, I mean, you know, and no one has said anything to any of us, and yet we're finding ourselves not in the institution. We're finding ourselves in the bodegas. We're finding ourselves in the supermarkets. We're finding ourselves in the grocery stores, in the you know the the, the pubs. If you go to pubs, we're finding ourselves in the cigar shop. We're finding ourselves in the parking lots of the church because it really is a grassroots movement of the spirit. So while spiritual ecumenism, right, um, continues to propel the notion of wanting a uh, an answer to the Jesus prayer and ecumenism of the spirit is literally bringing about this Jesus prayer and while spiritual ecumenism says hey um, we still have too many divisions and ecumenism of the spirit says no we don't no we don't we don't have that many divisions right and a spiritual ecumenism says you know, we're great, but we have perfect, uh, we have imperfect unity, right? That whole concept of Vatican II, unitatis redintegratio. We have imperfect unity because you don't believe in bishops and you don't believe in uh, Mary as a Theotokos and the saints and some others. The humanism of the spirit says, no, we, we come from a Pentecostal tradition, but we believe probably 95% of the things that you believe, um, and so we argue, I think an ecumenism of the spirit argues that it is the work of the spirit bringing us to a place of unity. Does that make sense? Instead of just our work and asking the spirit to come and bless it. And I think that's in continuity with Pentecostalism, right? Mm -hmm. Back to Acts 2. They're right. just in the room. Right. And the spirit descends upon them. Right. It's not it's not the church. They weren't, weren't in Jerusalem with the church and the bishops. It, it was all before that. Yes. And so yeah. I, I, I appreciate that chapter so much. So a, a penultimate question before we end all this conversation is is very enlightening is uh, what are some ways in which this Pentecostal orthodoxy that you describe is similar to certain great tr uh, uh, fruits of the great tradition, such as ancient Christian mysticism and monasticism? Yeah, so um, I think Pentecostal orthodoxy is Pentecostal orthodoxy as an expression because its roots um, are really mystic and monastic. I think it, it, you know, Pentecostalism has these roots that exist there. But in Pentecostal orthodoxy, we are actually drawing those roots out, right? We're actually making a point that we belong more to the monastic and mystical tradition than anything else. Um, I argue that Pentecostalism, this form of Pentecostalism is more Eastern monastic and mystical than it is anything. Um, as a matter of fact, um, most Pentecostals don't know that in the Eastern tradition, for example, there are really two lines of what we know as apostolic succession. Now, I'm not a guy who argues for apostolic succession. Um, I'm always arguing for apostolic work. Um, that that 
argument of apostolic session, they can have that. But apostolic work, I, I mean, we want to do that all day. Yet, um, um, wonderful scholars, uh, one of them being um, the, the, the late um, uh, Bishop, Archbishop um, um, Callistos Ware, um, you know, of memory eternal. And he would argue that there are two lines. One line that's hierarchical, right? And then the laying on of hands through the generations. But there's another line that is mystical, monastic, that comes through the monastic fathers, that comes through um, that stream of monasticism um, that expresses itself by um, the power of the Spirit through miracles, signs, and wonders. And when Pentecostals look at the monastic and mystical tradition and we begin to see ourselves there, it makes perfect sense. And so to what extent are we inheritors of what Simeon, the, the new theologian in the 11th century, calls that golden chain, right? That golden circle of that apostolic succession that comes down. And so I believe that in Pentecostal orthodoxy, we draw out that mystical and that monastic aspect of our spirituality and our theology, and we get to see ourselves and say, we belong to this. We've always belonged to this, and this belongs to us as well. I'm reminded of my Pentecostal parents who, once they got through that kind of anti-Catholic bias, have over the past several years just been reading so much mysticism and monastic works. And uh, they love Evagrius, Pontius. They love, uh, who else? Um, the the Byzantines. Oh, um, Pseudo-Dionysius. They just yes. love these mystics. Yes, and the illumination and light. Yes. Exactly. And once they got over that, which you speak of in the book, that anti-Catholic bias, they were able to totally recover these great, these great traditions. Well, this has just been a, a fantastic conversation, Bishop. Thank you so much. But before we end the podcast, I'd like to know what future uh, works you have planned, both in your academic career and also in your ecclesial work. Well, so right now um, I'm finishing up on um, the, the book uh, contribution for the fullness of time. Um, and it's a contribution... Um, following all of the liturgical seasons of the calendar. So um, Dr. Esau McCauley uh, has written on Lent. Tish Harrison, I think, is writing on another one. And so I'm, I just got done writing mine on Pentecost. Um, I've uh, started to write on Inheritors of the Golden Chain, um, arguing for Pentecostals who are recovering the great tradition to look at the second line of apostolic succession through uh, monastic and mystical lenses. And then I'm looking for the right publisher to publish um, what I will be entitling, or hopefully they're going to let me title it this way, um, by the power of the spirit. I'm going to look at epiclesis, the concept and the notion of the epiclesis historically, and I want to connect it to Pentecostalism and showing Pentecostals how this epiclesis, if it works for healing, if it works for signs, if it works for wonders, it's got to work at the table. Right. If it's if it's changing and transforming and creating new limbs and causing cancer to be gone out the body, if it has that kind of power, when we call upon the Holy Spirit, that invocation and we lay our hands, then that same Holy Ghost has to be changing the bread 
and the wine into the body and the blood of Jesus. And so I want to map that out and then look at that and interconnect both. I think that's fantastic. I think uh, we should not compartmentalize the spirit to just one aspect or one miracle. That's great. Well, Bishop Alvarez, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, talking with Bishop Emilio Alvarez about his new book, Pentecostal Orthodoxy Towards an Ecumenism of the Spirit, published by IVP Academic 2022. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day.